Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Word up. It's that biblical, biblical theology, theology study of the person of God. Attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics. And Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone, they give some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation. From God's creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes. So clever we behold his endeavors unfold. The greatest story ever told. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got to see the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction yeah. and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our reflections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our death, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got to see the importance of biblical theology. Welcome to another edition of... Theology Matters. We are so glad you guys could join us today. Got a big show, and I've been waiting to do this show for a while. People know me, know that I am a big fan of Professor Ken 
samples, and we've been looking really forward to doing his uh, new book, God Among Sages, and uh, we're able to book an interview with him, and uh, just excited to go through this book, and uh, should be a great, great interview. I uh, got my good friend Clinton Wilcox here with me. Uh, hello, how's it going? Yeah, Clinton, tell us real, real quickly kind of about yourself and what you're doing out here on the East Coast this week. Yeah, well, um, I hail from Fresno, California. I'm a pro-life advocate who works for Life Training Institute, of which uh, Scott Klusendorf is the, um, is the, the, you know, the leader of uh, the organization. Yeah, and uh, he's been out here working with us, uh, doing some stuff with uh, Ratio Christie, did a great uh, pro-life apologetics 101 uh, teaching last night, and uh, was very, very powerful. We'll talk more about that uh, in some upcoming episodes. Um, in fact, tomorrow I'm going to interview uh, just Clinton and do a kind of get into this issue of uh, abortion and how to respond to a lot of the pro-choice arguments. So be sure to uh, join us tomorrow for that. Um, <clears throat> real quick, if you've not liked us on Facebook, you can go to uh, facebook.com slash theology matters with the Palouse, and there you will find almost five years uh, of our episodes. We've done a lot of shows on uh, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, the cults, uh, atheism, uh, Roman Catholicism, done several debates. It's one of the, one of the things that uh, people have really enjoyed about the podcast is bringing on some really brilliant uh, people on both sides uh, of the issues. In fact, we've had Clinton, uh, his claim to fame as he uh, debated Matt Dillahunty uh, on this show of Theology Matters. And so we've got debates on the pro-life issue. Uh, we've had um, uh, some guys from Catholic Answers. We had Devin Rose on uh, to do a debate on uh, Sola Scriptura. And uh, have more debates and more of those things coming up. So be sure to go to our page to get all the ins and outs of that. So without further ado, let me go ahead and uh, introduce Professor uh, Samples. Uh, He is a theologian and a philosopher. He is with the ministry uh, Reasons to Believe, which is is, a phenomenal ministry. We'll have him tell us a little bit more about that. Um, Professor Samples focuses on demonstrating the unique compatibility of Christianity's great doctrinal truths with reason and logic. Uh, He is the author of several books, uh, which I think I I own all of them, uh, including Christian Endgame, Seven Truths That Changed the World, A World of Difference, and Without a Doubt. He leads uh, RTB's Straight Thinking podcast, which actually came to, to an end a little while ago, but uh, highly recommend that podcast. You can still get it. Uh, he also writes on his blog, uh, Reflections, uh, does a, a weekly blog um, dedicated to exploring the Christian worldview, spoken at numerous universities, churches around uh, the world on such topics as religion and worldview, the identity of Jesus, and Christian apologetics. Also makes frequent appearances on radio programs such uh, as Stand a Reason, and uh, I believe he's done the Bible Answer Man a few times, and is also an adjunct professor at Biola. And uh, you know, all my all my Biola peeps love uh, Professor Samples. So, um, Professor Samples, it is uh, really really great to have you here with us today. 
Well, thank you, Devin. It's a real pleasure to be with you. I've enjoyed our uh, past programs together and uh, looking forward to this, and it's uh, nice to be with you and Clinton today. I appreciate it very much. Yeah, thank you. Um, maybe for those who are not familiar with uh, Reasons to Believe, I don't know if you wanted to take a, a minute or two and kind of talk about what you guys do out there. Sure. Reasons to Believe is a science-based apologetic organization. It was founded by uh, the astrophysicist uh, Hugh Ross, and uh, we have a scholar team, uh, a five-member scholar team, and uh, we really focus on issues relating to uh, faith and science. As, as uh, you guys know, uh, science is a, is a powerful enterprise, and uh, there are lots of questions that come to bear in terms of how Christianity relates to science. Is science and Christianity compatible? And uh, the organization's been going for more than 30 years now. So uh, we have a, a staff, I think, of about 40 people. And uh, it's out of Covina, California, which is a suburb of Los Angeles. And I've been working there in June will be 20 years, so I can't believe wow. that it's been that long. But uh, uh, I've had uh, some great opportunities to uh, speak and write uh, and to work with uh, some colleagues that are scientists whom I have a lot of respect for. Yeah, and it's it's just a, it's a it's a phenomenal ministry, you know. I uh, just really appreciate the work. Uh, that you guys do, and I'm I'm actually funny thing is I'm actually a young Earth creationist. Uh, I know there's wow. sometimes some rivalry between that, but I really appreciate the work um, of Reasons to Believe, and <clears throat> we often uh, recommend your guys's books to our Ratio Christie students, and uh, really really thankful for Dr. Ross and Dr. Rana and, and and yourself as well as the other other staff members. Real, you guys have made a real impact, I think, on the Christian community with the scientific apologetic, especially. Well, so. thank you. That's uh, that's uh, very kind, and given that you're you hold a young Earth view, that uh, <laughs> that's a that's a very gracious thing to say. I appreciate it. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Um, you want to talk a little bit, maybe, about uh, your newest book here, "God Among Sages." Uh, what? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I talk, wrote talk the book. A little bit uh, about uh, why you wrote the book. Yeah, uh, Devin, I think that uh, my first thought about this book probably was about 25 years ago. I was back then, before I was working at Reasons to Believe, I was teaching philosophy and courses in logic and world religion at a couple of public colleges here in Southern California. And I had. Uh, a number of students in the class. Some I remember having two Hindu students, a couple uh, Muslim students, and uh, a Buddhist student, and a number of Christians. And I remember after a final exam, they kind of uh, stayed after class and were asking me particular questions about the uniqueness of Christianity, how Jesus differed from individuals like Krishna and, and Buddha and Muhammad. And, um, I, uh, at that time, thought, boy, I wish I had a book that I could give to these students that would really provide a, a contrast, a comparison uh, between uh, 
the historic Christian view of, of Jesus Christ with these other particular religious leaders. So 25 years later, uh, I never uh, uh, forgot about that book, and I'm very fortunate to, uh, to have finished it and got it out. And uh, so that was kind of the origin, just talking with students who uh, come from other religions. And, and you know, Devin, I mean, if you went back only 50 years ago, 50 years ago, if I wanted to talk to a Hindu or a Muslim or a Buddhist, I'd probably have to go on a mission trip overseas. But today, everything has changed. You know, your next-door neighbor may be from Southeast Asia. Uh, you know, somebody in your class may be uh, a Muslim. And, uh, you know, you may your kids may go play soccer, and the parents are, are Buddhists. So uh, many of the world's religions that seemed so far away 50 years ago are now right in our, right in our backyard. Yeah, that's that is a really good point. Um, it's interesting, you know, doing doing missionary work on the college campus. I mean, you deal a lot with naturalism and, and atheism and those things, but one of the big barriers, honestly, one of the one of the bigger barriers is this idea uh, of kind of the exclusivity uh, of Christianity. And um, how can we say uh, Buddhists are wrong or Muslims are wrong? I uh, actually went uh, did a kind of a joint dinner with one of the uh, ministries on the campus uh, of the university where I'm at on Wednesday. And uh, these particular people are pastors of this uh, Lutheran church. And we, you know, we, we had this discussion. We had a few of our students, they had several of theirs uh, and they agreed that it was very arrogant to say uh, that Christianity is the only true religion and that Jesus is the only way to heaven uh, and even thought that uh, it may not be the most loving thing to do uh, to 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 evangelize and to share the gospel. And so uh, this book, it's 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 very important because not only do you have uh, you know your neighbors and that that are coming from different parts of the world and different beliefs, but if you're a college student, this is or high school even this this is one of the big uh, objections that come up often. I'm sure as you know. Yeah, I think when you look at, uh, you know, when you look at some of the statistics, uh, the Pew report said that if the trends continue by 2050, there'll be more than 9 billion people in the world. 3 billion will be Christian. Almost 3 billion will be Muslim. And then there'll be 3 billion others, uh, people of other religions and, and, of course, secular as well. But, you know, we talk a lot about the new atheism uh, but stats I've seen may indicate that atheism may be somewhere between 10 and 14 percent of the world population, which means that, uh, you know, 86 to 90 percent are people that are deeply religious. And uh, you're, you're exactly right. We live in a culture where to claim Christianity is uniquely true is often seen as intolerant. It is uh, it's a world that, that seems to promote pluralism and uh, inclusivism and so the idea that christianity is the one true religion christ is the only savior and uh, faith in him is necessary for salvation that position is often uh, seen in our time uh, you know as being um, an unacceptable point of view so 
I think the content of this book really is quite relevant to where we find ourselves in our culture. Yeah, I I like the uh, the introduction. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. But it starts with saying, um, "quote Who do the world's religions say the Son of Man is?" The Buddhists say uh, a, and I, I'm not going to be able to pronounce that term. Uh, what is hey, it? Ba- a bodhisattva. Okay. A bodhisattva. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The, the Hindus say an avatar, and the Muslims say the one uh, one of the prophets of Allah. Uh, but what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? The Christians answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Um, talk to us a little bit maybe about the introduction. Was there anything you wanted to, to add with this to kind of set the the uh, discussion up? Yeah, what I was thinking uh, in that part of the book, uh, Devin, is, you know, Jesus was very interested in drawing people's attention to his identity. And, of course, I've taken that that passage out of Matthew 16 where Jesus asked his disciples, who, who do the people say the Son of Man is? And then, of course, leads them to reflect on their own views. And Peter ultimately says, you know, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I think uh, if we were to ask that question today by the world's religions, it's, it's interesting to me that everybody seems to have an opinion about Jesus, including people in other religions. And uh, so I begin the book by asking the question, well, everybody seems to have an opinion about Jesus. What was Jesus' own opinion of himself? How did, what was his self-understanding? And uh, that's kind of the beginning place uh, for, the, for the book. Very good. Yeah, maybe, maybe uh, Clinton, did you want to ask a question? Um, <clears throat> Well, uh, not really at this um, this moment. I'm kind of just enjoying hearing uh, Professor Samples talking about his book. Yeah. yeah I, well, I guess I could um, just kind of state that uh, you know I, I I too believe that uh, this book is is very important. It's very much needed, uh, considering how how much uh, religious pluralism has kind of taken root in our culture, and I think that probably um, has its roots in in this. Uh, postmodern idea. Um, so yeah, I I very much uh, you know I'm looking forward to um, per- perusing it at, at some point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Professor Samples, maybe you can kind of kick us off. You got part one here, the historic Christian portrait of Jesus Christ, and that's really is one of the beauties of the Christian faith is that it is a it is a historical. Uh, historical faith based on events that happened uh, in history. So you got chapter one, Jesus, stunning self-understanding. Maybe talk to us a few minutes about that. Yeah, I, as I mentioned, I thought it was really critical to to ask the question, how did Jesus understand himself? I mean, many non-Christians think, well, uh, you say Jesus is God, and Christianity says that he is God in human flesh. But did Jesus really believe that? What, what was his own self-understanding? So I begin there, and uh, I begin to look at the various ways that uh, I think Jesus clearly did understand uh, that he was divine. Um, you know, he claimed equality with, with God the Father. I mean, there's a number of things that he says that are extraordinary. Uh, he seems to communicate that... Uh, 
you know, to relate to him is, is to relate to God. He says, uh, you know, if you really knew me, you would know my father as well. Anyone who has seen me has, has seen the father. Jesus seems to communicate the idea that uh, relating to him is, is ultimately relating to Yahweh. And I go on to also talk about other things. For example, that uh, the religious leaders of the time, uh, they viewed the claims that Jesus made about himself to be, to be blasphemous in, in, in nature. When Jesus says things like, uh, I and the Father, we are one, or uh, in a dispute in Matthew, excuse me, John 8, with some of the religious leaders, they become exasperated with him and ask him, well, who are you? And he reaches into the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, chapter 45 through 48. Yahweh refers to himself as I am or I am he. So there's a number of times within the Gospels where Jesus makes claims that border on claiming equality with Yahweh. And this is the, this is the very thing that the religious leaders claim, that he somehow is uh, committing blasphemy for this for these kinds of actions. So this chapter is uh, really looking at Jesus. He, he, you know, he invokes divine prerogatives. He claims to be able to forgive sin. He receives worship. Uh, he's able to hear and answer prayer. He claims to raise the dead and judge humanity. And the reality is that these are only things that God can do. So he's speaking in a first century Jewish culture who believes in one God, that God is Yahweh Elohim, but Jesus claims to have the prerogatives that are true only of God himself. And so I come away in that first chapter uh, setting forth uh, the critical idea that Jesus was a man, but that he was also God, or as historic Christianity asserts, he was a single person who possessed both a divine and human nature. The early Christians referred to him using a Greek term, the anthropos or the god man so as amazing as it is i remember c.s lewis in his book mere christianity called it the shocking alternative the the, the shocking alternative is that uh, uh jesus claims to be divine and one author uh described earth as the visited planet because earth had been visited by god and that that really opens up the door to the idea that God has revealed himself. He's revealed himself in space and time. Uh, he has come to earth. I mean, that has implications for all kinds of issues, like you know, why is God hidden? Uh, it has implications for how can we know who God is? So the incarnation, I think, Devin and Clinton, may be um, right at the very heart of historic Christianity. So Chapter 1 is about Jesus' own thinking about himself. Yeah. Um, uh, Professor Samples, uh, you have a table in the, in the first chapter, the table regarding who do people say I am, and it has uh, different these different religious views, such as from the Baha'i and Buddhism, Hinduism, etc. Uh, do all of these different religions have, um, I guess, have official ideas of who Jesus was, and it, it seems it, it seems like it kind of shows just how important a figure uh, Jesus was in history, because all these different religions have these have these different views. So how does how does Jesus really the, the Jesus 
that we understand from history and from Christianity? How does that, uh, how does the Jesus that we believe in compare to the Jesus that these other uh, religious worldviews teach? Yeah, I'm really glad you've raised that, that question, and I, I think you're right on track. Jesus is such an extraordinary individual that, uh, in fact, other religions have been influenced by him. I personally think that uh, Buddhism, uh, form, some forms of Buddhism, some forms of Hinduism, have uh, noticed how incredibly influential Christianity is in terms of having a relationship with, with God. And I think they've tried to copy that to some extent. So these religions do have uh, particular viewpoints about Jesus. And uh, I think the reason is because Jesus is the most extraordinary person in history, uh, and everybody in some way or another has to come to grips with him. And so uh, that chart, and I, I uh, have more than 50 charts in the book because I really was hoping that the book could be used as kind of a, you know, kind of a tool chest, a place where somebody could, could go and get information and be able to sit down and talk with some of these people. But, Clinton, you're, you're right on track there because I think that uh, everybody has a view of Jesus because there's no way you can ignore him. He's far too influential, and so these other religions, to some degree, have to come to grips with him. Yeah, very good. Uh, chapter 2, yeah, I like this quote. Uh, the title is The Matchless Life of Jesus. starts out with a quote from Richard Bauckham. says, Jesus of Nazareth, or Jesus Christ, as Christians call him, uh, is undoubtedly the best-known and most influential human person in world history. So um, one of the things probably is I know you're aware of is, as, uh, is the Internet has given rise to uh, a lot of people. You have uh, people that will go so far as to claim Jesus never even existed, uh, a lot of the, the Jesus mythers and, and stuff like that. Um uh, what would you say as far as kind of the historic Jesus, uh, some of the things we can know from from history, and uh, when you talk about the matchless life of Jesus, maybe you can explain what you mean a little bit with that. Sure. Uh, you know, one thing that uh, <clears throat> I learned really in, in researching and writing this book is that we know a tremendous amount of information about Jesus that we don't know about these other religious leaders. So the middle section of the book, I compare Jesus with uh, the Hindu Krishna uh, Buddha representing the Buddhist faith and Confucius and Muhammad. Um, what's interesting is we know a great deal about Jesus. Uh, we've derived that information um, not only from the oral tradition that directly followed uh, the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, but also the the letters that were written by the apostles, particularly the apostle Paul, then the gospel material. And so we have a very clear fix of uh, Jesus was born uh, somewhere between 6 and 4 BC, probably died either in 30 or 33 AD. And let me contrast that with what we know about the other leaders. Um, Hindu scholars say that they're not sure whether Krishna ever existed at all historically. He may have, 
and he may have been kind of the summation of a couple different people mixed with mythology. But of course, Hindus don't really care whether Krishna was a historical person because they view mythology as being a higher uh, state than a merely a, an appearance in history. With the Buddha, for example, uh, Buddhist scholars are not sure what century he was born in. There could be a two and a half to three century difference, depending on whether you have an early or late date in terms of uh, Siddhartha Gautama, who Buddhists believe to be the the enlightened one. That's what the the title Buddha means. And even with uh, with Confucius, who we know a lot about. Uh, there is a lot of uh, mythology mixed with it, and even the information we have about Muhammad, who is clearly a historical figure, born in 570, dies in 632 uh, A.D., uh, the information we get about Muhammad does not emerge as quickly and as directly from uh, eyewitnesses and people who knew eyewitnesses in terms of Christianity. So the reality is that we know a lot more about Jesus historically, and the people who make these claims uh, that he was a myth, I know uh, people like Robert Price, and there are a number of other individuals. But you know what's interesting is that uh, people on the Jesus Seminar do not argue that way. They, Dominic Crossan and various others, uh, even Bart Ehrman, the uh, skeptic or atheist, he clearly says that, of course, Jesus existed. Uh, we know that much uh, powerfully from the Gospels, from the Epistles. And then, of course, there is uh, the writings of uh, Jews and Romans and Greeks that's, that mention him. So uh, we have, I think, an embarrassment of riches when it comes to knowledge. And by the way, there is a, a recent article in the uh, Free Inquiry, which is a skeptical magazine, where one atheist takes the the uh, the myth people who argue for Jesus as a myth and says we should not go down that road. That is a losing proposition. So uh, we've always had good reason to believe Jesus was a historical figure, and we have better to re reasons to believe in the historicity of Christ than Hindus, Buddhists, Confucianists, and Muslims have for their individual uh, religious leaders. <laughs> Yeah, I think even uh, Dr. Ehrman actually wrote a whole book defending the uh, historical existence of Jesus. I mean, he doesn't believe Jesus rose from the dead in that, uh, but he, he certainly, uh, you know, agrees Jesus was a historical person and existed and and that. So, uh, you know, if he's saying that, I think that's that's a, that's should do away with the uh, with that mythicist view. That's ex that's exactly right. I and I think uh, I think it's important to uh, to also say that I mean if we don't know anything about Jesus, then we don't know anything about Plato or Aristotle or any of the classical works, and so the academy would really come to a halt. The university system would come to a halt if one were to say that Jesus is a myth. And I think people like Robert Price even say that. You know, they say, well. Maybe we don't know anything about Plato and Aristotle, which is, I think, a illustration of how desperate they are to escape from the testimony of the New Testament. They're willing to, to enhance their skepticism to the point where they may not know anything about the ancient world at all. 
but that's not a that's not a viable that's not a tenable uh, scholarly position. Yeah, it's it's funny even, um, and I think people like Dr. Ehrman see the problem with that that it's so radical, uh, it's going to just make their whole it's going to do a lot of damage to to um, just the skepticism in general. Uh, there's actually uh, Bart Ehrman and uh, Robert Price actually did a debate on whether or not Jesus existed. It's on wow. it's on YouTube. Happened in uh, October 25th. I think. Uh, couple of atheist groups put that on and so you can actually watch Bart Ehrman <laughs> act like a, a Christian apologist and defend the, the historical Jesus. Uh, interesting. Uh, let me get the yeah. number out real quick. Um, 760-542-3907. 760-542-3907. Uh, Professor Samples is here and, and uh, wanted to take your call so feel free to call in. And uh, Clinton, did you have a question? Yeah, um, for Professor Samples, uh, you, you mentioned a moment ago uh, Plato and Aristotle and the classics, and I think um, one of the reasons why modern Christians have kind of accepted this postmodern idea that uh, that all religions and all uh, faith ideas are equally true is because they don't understand logic or philosophy, such as the law of non-contradiction, which states that that two contradictory things cannot both be true at the same time and in the same sense. Uh, in your second chapter here, you've got a, a section on Jesus' personality um, and, and a subheading, Reasoning, in which I, I think a lot of people just kind of don't really understand, especially if, they, if they're rejecting philosophy, that they don't really understand that Jesus himself uh, was a philosopher. And so uh, what, what are some of the ways that uh, Jesus interacted with his critics um, that, that he used uh, philosophy or logical reasoning? Yeah, that's a that's a very important point. Uh, chapter two really kind of tries to focus in on the person of Jesus, asking questions like, "What was he like?" and uh, you know, um, a, a very important part of course his ministry was his teaching ministry. And when you begin to kind of drill down a little bit and and look at uh, at Jesus. Uh, he is a person who engages in argumentation. Uh, he has a number of uh, pretty uh, fierce discussions with religious leaders. There are people who challenge him, and he responds by making claims, by appealing to evidence, by critiquing arguments. Uh, you see this in a number of places uh, uh, in the Gospels. Um, and so Jesus himself... Uh, you know, uh, Jesus doesn't, uh, uh, he doesn't come from a university like uh, uh, Plato and his uh, academy or Aristotle from the Lyceum. But it's very clear that Jesus is a brilliant individual, uh, that he is able to communicate forcefully. He seems to know the scriptures inside and out. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of times uh, they, the, uh, his enemies, his uh, critics, try to play gotcha with him, and uh, he is able to uh, uh, to communicate the way that a Christian apologist, a Christian philosopher, uh, obviously would. And so, I think you're right, Clinton. I think a lot of times people fail to see the tremendous uh, mind and uh, critical ability that, that Jesus had. We often think of him in terms of his, his compassion, his love, his altruism, 
And that's certainly all true. But Jesus, I think, is motivated by two fundamental ideas. Uh, he's motivated by truth and love. And uh, uh, being truthful and appealing to reason and rationality, uh, arguing that there are principles of, of logic that uh, cannot be denied or ignored, in no way uh, undermines the, the great altruism that Jesus illustrates. So uh, those are some of the things I do in that second chapter, looking at his teaching, looking at his healing, um, looking at the various aspects. How does he relate to people? And, you know, one thing I want to touch on is, uh, you know, today we, we often ask questions. I, In fact, I was writing an article recently, and somebody asked me to uh, comment on how I thought apologetics may have changed over the last 30 years. And I think one way that apologetics has changed, if, if I went back 30 years ago, let's say to 1987, uh, when I first joined the Christian Research Institute, when I would go to the university, students would often ask me, is Christianity true? Did Jesus rise from the dead? Does God exist? What about the problem of evil? These are very analytical-type questions. Today, when I go to the university, there are still people who ask those analytical truth questions. But oftentimes, I have students and even faculty ask me, well, is Christianity a good force in the world? Has it been good for women? Has it been good for racial minorities? And I think part of that is a kind of postmodern element um, where you kind of have uh, uh, identity politics. But what's interesting is for each of these religious leaders, Jesus and then uh, uh, Krishna, Buddha, Confucius, and Muhammad, I ask how did they relate to women? And what's extraordinary is that uh, Jesus treats women with tremendous dignity. Rabbis did not usually carry on discussion in public with women. I mean... Jesus respects women. They're part of his disciples. In fact, in the resurrection, uh, it, is, it appears that women are the first one to see Jesus. So he has uh, a respect for them uh, that exceeds uh, what is found by the other religious leaders and, and even in Judaism. So that second chapter is really trying to come to grips with um, and, and I think what, what, what's illustrated here is something Houston Smith said. Houston Smith's one of the, leading, the world's leading scholars on the world's religions. Uh, he said about Jesus and Jesus' preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, he said Jesus not only preached the Sermon on the Mount, he appears to have lived it. That is, the values that are, that are set forth in, in that sermon seem to characterize Jesus' very life. And so... Um, I just don't think that there is anybody like Jesus. There's no second place. I mean, I don't compare very well to Jesus. I'm, I'm sure neither did the two of you. But even if we bring no. <laughs> the world's greatest sages, the, the world's greatest religious leaders, they don't compare very well to Jesus. And so there is this, uh, this extraordinary life. And I, I asked in the book, what would, you expect, what would you expect God to be like if he appeared into the world, and I think that he would teach us truth. I think he would heal uh, the brokenhearted, those who are suffering. Um, I think that he would uh, do something to change the status 
that we have before God. And I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but I would tell you this. Um, uh, Krishna and Buddha and Confucius and Muhammad, they don't do anything for their followers. They don't do anything that changes the status of their fo- their followers before God in the next world. Jesus is the one who dies to change uh, the status of, of his followers. So he, that second chapter really tries to look at that extraordinary life. Nobody's like him. Hey, man, nobody is like him. I love that. Um, chapter three, there's so much, just so much wonderful stuff uh, in this book, folks. you got to get this book. Um, but uh, chapter three, historic Christology. And I uh, love this quote you have by McGrath. Uh, it says, Chalcedon simply states uh, definitively what the first five centuries of Christian reflection on the New Testament had already uh, established. Um, it's important, uh, I think. I think one of the glaring uh, issues with Mormonism has been as the science has gotten better and archaeology has gotten better, uh, that a lot of these claims are just not really substantiated. I think one of the pow- powerful things uh in the Christian faith is that it is a it is a historic faith and so much theological uh, implications in the text, but ultimately grounded in that historical fig, historical figure of Christ. But talk to us a little bit about chapter three here, historic Christology. Yeah, one of the things that uh, I really think is is important is, of course, that the Christians have a a well thought out theology of who Jesus is, what he accomplished. We call this our, our Christology. Uh, Christos is, is a title. Um, it is Greek for uh, Messiah. The Hebrew Messiah, the Greek is, is Christos. So Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Um, one of the things that kind of motivated me and as I thought about this chapter is that uh, you know, often people think that, uh, you mentioned Bart Ehrman. Uh, Bart Ehrman thinks that uh, Jesus didn't claim to be God. The early apostles who were Jewish didn't, didn't think he was God. But the di- divinity of Christ went through centuries, and it, was, it wasn't until the Council of Chalcedon that the bishops, according to, uh, to Bart Ehrman and people who hold that view, there was kind of a voting in of the divinity of Christ. But the reality is that, uh, and McGrath says it in that quote, uh, the reality is that the earliest Christians believed deeply in the divinity of Christ. Uh, There are creedal statements uh, that come from primitive Christianity, and what I mean by primitive Christianity is the earliest form of Christianity, the Jewish Christianity. And uh, Philippians 2, Colossians 1, there's a passage in Peter, there is a passage in 1 Corinthians 15, where the early apostles used early creeds and hymns, and if you look at these, they are earlier uh, in origin even than the the, uh, books in which they appear, and they have very high Christologies. And so chapter 3 is really... Uh, an attempt to lay out uh, what historic Christianity says about the person of Christ, uh, that he is, again, 
a single person with both a divine and human nature, uh, and it seeks to respond to some of the heretical challenges uh, that came through the centuries. And so Christianity has always had to engage in an apologetic uh, setting forth what we believe and defending it from people who attacked it and criticized it. So that one chapter is meant to be kind of a summary of what uh, we call uh, Christology within our our systematic theology. Seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven, folks. If you would like to get on and and uh, ask Professor Samples a question, at seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven. Professor Samples, uh, you, yes, you spend. Looks like a, a great deal of chapter three talking about uh, the incarnation of Christ. Um, it seems that some people, who, or especially people of other faiths, uh, reject the incarnation because they have trouble uh, believing that two distinct, separate natures could inhabit one individual. Uh, what, what do you say to people who raise that objection against uh, against Christ being fully God and fully man? Yeah, it's. Uh... It's a very serious. Uh, it's a very serious issue. Everybody from the famous uh, pluralist philosopher John Hick uh, to, to to various atheists who have uh, who have raised that question. And one of the things I do at the end of chapter three is I I look at two analogies that uh, may be ways of kind of thinking about or making sense of the incarnation. Uh, the first one is that maybe the incarnation should be thought of as analogous to, to a person having two nationalities. And I give a quotation uh, from the theologian Gerald Bray, where he talks about uh, when people are, are, come from two nations. Uh, let's take, for example, Benjamin Netanyahu, who was educated in the West, but of course uh, speaks fluent Hebrew. I'm always amazed when I listen to somebody like Netanyahu because they can be setting forth something clearly in the Hebrew language, and at the drop of a, a pin, they then turn and begin speaking English. Well, Gerald Bray says, what if Jesus was like that? What if his divinity and humanity was kind of analogous to having two nationalities where you were able to uh, speak in languages. And I remember the days when I first started studying Greek. And uh, as an English speaker, I would have to think about the Greek grammar kind of in English and then kind of go back to the Greek. But people who are very good linguists, they're able to move back and forth kind of seamlessly. I think Benjamin Netanyahu is like that. When he speaks Hebrew, then he speaks English. It's almost as if he can think in either language. Maybe that's the way Jesus was, because there are times where we do ask ourselves, is he speaking at that point from the standpoint of his divinity, or is he speaking from the point of view of his humanity? So that's, I think, an interesting analogy that might help people. Uh, another uh, analogy that I use is a two levels of awareness where uh, – you know, we talk about a conscious mind and a subconscious mind. You know, your conscious mind is your, your awareness. The subconscious is deeper. It is uh, dealing with things at a more fundamental level. Is it possible that psychology gives us 
maybe an analogy for Jesus where he had a consciousness of both his humanity and his divinity. So I think that there are clearly arguments that can be made. I don't think that the skeptics of the Incarnation have ever provided a really persuasive argument that God could not take a human nature. And, of course, the early church, um, I think the early Christian theologians are to be given a lot of credit because uh, the Council of Chalcedon uh, states, I think, with great clarity uh, how we are to think about these two natures. And uh, so it's true God is infinite. It's true that we'll never understand the Trinity as the members of the Trinity understand themselves. But because we're made in the image of God and because we have the, the ability to grasp principles of reasoning and logic and rationality, uh, I think we can come to uh, a good understanding of how God has revealed his son being both God and man. So I try to do a little bit of that at the end of chapter uh, 3. Very good. Can you stay with us for another 30 or 40 minutes, uh, Professor Samples, or do you need to sure. run? Yeah, okay, I, great. I can be with you. Okay, let's uh, let's do this. We'll go ahead and take a, a quick uh, two- or three-minute break. We'll come back, and uh, we'll dig into Chapter 5 and uh, kind of pick it up from there. Really, really appreciate you hanging out with us. Be sure to uh, not go anywhere because uh, we're going to come back. We're going to dig into the rest of this book, uh, God Among Sages. So stay with us. My name is Scott Klusendorf. I'm the president of Life Training Institute, and I'm a guest lecturer in bioethics at Biola University. The Case for Life was written to express to the believer in Jesus Christ that he or she can make a defense for what they believe on the pro-life issue without offending people, by being gracious, and yet at the same time bringing solid logic and argumentation to the debate so that unbelievers look at the Christian at that point and go, wow, Christianity has something relevant to say on a crucial moral issue of our day. Maybe, just maybe, it has something relevant to say on other big issues as well. Because once you start talking about the ultimate questions, like do humans have value for what they are or what they can do? Is truth real and knowable or is it just a preference like choosing ice cream? Once you bring those questions to the table, it's a real short journey over to the other questions over here, which have to do with how do we get right with our maker? How do I as an individual get my, my life in line with the creator of the universe? It's a nice bridge right into talking to people on evangelistic topics. I just want to start off by saying that this was not a tempest in a teapot. Chiseled into the stone of the Reformation wall are the Latin words post-tenebras lux, after darkness, light. Luther was convinced that the gospel itself had fallen into darkness and obscurity in the late Middle Ages. The Reformation, from his perspective, was the recapturing and recovering of nothing less than the gospel itself. The gospel is so plain in Scripture that a child can understand it. If you don't have 
the doctrine of justification by faith alone. You don't have the gospel. And if you don't have the gospel, the church has no reason to exist. The church itself ceases to be a church and falls into apostasy. But beyond the general ecclesiastical application there, Luther, by extension, would be saying that the doctrine of justification by faith alone is the article upon which you stand or fall, the article upon which I stand or fall. Again, why? Because it is the article that answers the question, what must I do to be saved? Professor Samples on his new book, God Among Sages, and we are at chapter, we're going to, just for sake of time, we're going to go ahead and... Uh, uh, just real just real quick, yeah. um, was there some kind of like special meaning with the uh, song that you were playing, or... Oh, no, 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 just a big Metallica fan. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> um, just for sake of time, we're going to go ahead and skip chapter four and uh, go to uh, chapter five. Chapter four is answering the challenges to Jesus' historic uh, identity. Very, very important uh, chapter, obviously. Um, just for, for sake of time, though, we want to get, get uh, through a lot of this. So chapter five is the prince, uh, Krishna and the Lord. And... Uh, I see you got a quote from uh, Dr. Uh, Winfred Cordwin. He was one of my, actually one of my mentors. I, I absolutely oh, yeah. love Dr. Cordwin. Yeah, yeah, I've had him on the show several times. Um, the quote says, The God of Christianity has no devotees. He has children adopted into his family and whom he indwells by his Holy Spirit. So maybe you can talk a little bit about Chapter 5. Yes, uh, this is, of course, uh, the middle section of the book where I begin to look carefully at uh, four of the religious leaders, and Chapter 5 is about Krishna, and I explore his life. Uh, Again, Hindu scholars are divided about whether he actually existed historically. It may be a, a combination of historical people mixed with mythology, or maybe it may be just pure mythology, But I do look at what is revealed in the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, I explore what uh, various Hindus say. And you know, one thing that I discovered, I first learned this from from Lynn Korshin, that, uh, you know, I always thought that most most Hindus were pantheists, but the the truth appears to be that most Hindus are bhakti Hindus, and they believe uh, in what is called malatriism, which is roughly 
a belief in monotheism. Most Hindus center wow. their life around one deity, and that deity is Krishna. So in that chapter, I begin to develop a criteria of eight points where I compare Jesus with, with Krishna. And I end the chapter by offering suggestions that uh, can maybe help Christians as they sit down and talk with people about the various religions and kind of give them hopefully some tools about how they can uh, have a basic understanding of the other religions and are able then to present uh, Christ and Christianity and, and the unique claims of our faith. Yeah, that is really neat. I did not did not know that uh, they were, were monotheistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah um, uh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. Uh, you, you can go ahead, Professor Samples. Go ahead. Go ahead, Clinton. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I was just um, uh, noticing that at, at the end of your your chapters, you've got a, a section here on uh, on suggestions for evangelistic account- encounters if you encounter these kinds of people, um, and or you know people with these particular faiths. And uh, I, I was really appreciating that you uh, you suggest emphasizing common ground. Uh, as a pro-life advocate myself, that this is something that I've been trained really to focus on as well, is to find common ground with people who disagree with you, uh, because it, it really helps um, establish a rapport with the people that you're talking, uh, with people that you're talking with. Uh, what are what are some elements that um, that Hindus believe, uh, or or Christians believe that um, that we can find common ground with? Yeah, I think that there is a, a couple important areas, and again, one of the reasons I emphasize this is I believe deeply in what I call the golden rule of apologetics, and that means uh, the golden rule, of course, is treat people the way you want to be treated. Right. The golden rule of apologetics is treat people's beliefs the way you want yours treated, and I think we could sit down with Hindus, particularly Bhakti Hindus. We can talk about the similar areas of ethics that we share. Uh, Hindus typically affirm the second half, the second five of the Ten Commandments, prohibitions against illicit sexual relations. They emphasize the importance of being truthful, uh, not stealing. I think there are ethical issues that we can begin to talk uh, with them about, areas in which we share. And I think with Bhakti Hinduism, in particular, we can talk to them and say, look, you have a relationship with Krishna. Uh, You view him in some ways as a savior type. We also have a relationship with our savior, Jesus. This is a place in which we can at least begin to have uh, a a dialogue. And, you know, I think that uh, if Christians felt that they had a basic understanding of other religions and had some... uh, uh, plan of uh, a discussion and dialogue, they may be more apt to uh, overcome some of their anxiety and fear and engage in, in apologetic and evangelistic discussions. And again, I uh, emphasize how important it is, I think, to be as winsome as we can, to be as respectful as we can. Because, you know, when I watch uh, the History Channel or the National Geographic Channel and somebody's on there and I think they misrepresent my faith, that deeply bothers me. 
I certainly don't want to misrepresent anybody else's faith. I want to be as careful yeah. uh, and as respectful as I possibly can. Yeah, golden rule of apologetics, right? You've done a few shows on that, I think. <laughs> How, um, let's see here, because it does seem like uh, Buddhism and some of these other kind of Eastern um, religions are really starting to pick up steam uh, in America. Um just curious, what what are some good places for people who are who may have friends that are or family that are kind of getting into Buddhism or or Hinduism? Um, just curious, how how do we? Where's some good places to start with that? Maybe for maybe some maybe some good resources where we could start uh, learning about that, as well as how do we have some of these conversations? Yeah, those are those are very important things to be thinking about. Uh, Devin and Clinton, in writing this book, I came to the conclusion that I think Buddhism is Christianity's greatest apologetic competitor from a religious standpoint. Now, that might sound a little surprising given that Islam is so large, 1.6 billion. We might think that Islamic theism would be clearly Christianity's competitor, and certainly it is a competitive, major competitor in the marketplace of ideas, but I think Buddhism is a philosophical challenge to Christianity, largely because they begin with the problem of pain and suffering in life, and that, uh, that frankly is a good insight on their part, that uh, life has significant suffering associated with it. Now, I don't think uh, while I think Buddha does a good job in terms of kind of diagnosing the problem of pain and suffering, I think what he offers in terms of a treatment or a cure is inadequate and unacceptable. But uh, I think places uh, to begin uh, is, you know, to be thinking about uh, some of the areas in which uh, Christians and Buddhists have similar views. For example, again, common ground. I mean, Buddhists believe in uh, the importance of spiritual discipline. Uh, they believe in, in uh, meditation. They believe in the importance of living a spiritual life. They believe that there is something more significant than the temporal world in which we live. So those are areas I think that we can begin some kind of dialogue. But again, I think the place we want to move is to looking and maybe comparing how Buddha compares with Jesus, how, uh, how Buddhist ideas of the afterlife uh, differ with a Christian kind of point of view. Um, you know, I was uh, in a restaurant just a few weeks ago with my family, and uh, I uh, was seated at a table, and I noticed that there were about uh, six or eight Buddhists in the restaurant. They were dressed in their robes their sandals, and uh, I almost immediately wanted to go over and just say, you know, hello, I would like to, I'd like to hear uh, where are you from, what, uh, what branch of Buddhism are you part of, and again, I think if, uh, I think if Christians, uh, and again, this is one of the reasons I wrote it, and so I guess I'm going to recommend that people get a copy of my book, I think you can read my chapter on Buddhism, and come away with a basic understanding of what Buddhists believe 
the areas in which there's common ground and then move toward areas that are very critical. But I think another I think another attraction to Buddhism is, you know, Buddhism, you don't have to believe in God. Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, he was at least a, maybe an agnostic. He may have been an atheist. He never talked about God. So in Buddhism, you can be spiritual without believing in God. And, of course, you have no moral God to, to put claims upon you. So I, that's why I think a lot of intellectual people are attracted to Buddhism. You have spirituality. You have an issue addressing the problem of suffering. But you don't have the moral uh, challenges yeah. that uh, Judaism and Christianity offer. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, um, I actually have a question regarding the um, uh, the preparation for writing this book. Um, how did you how did you prepare to write um, chapters on so many of these different faiths? Uh, did you talk to various people who believe them? Did you talk to religious leaders or read through their religious texts? Uh, what was your your preparation uh, for writing it like? Yes, very good. Um, Well, one of them is that uh, I've been teaching courses on world religions and comparative religions for 25 years, and uh, I have uh, spent time uh, talking with uh, Islamic imams, talking with Buddhist priests, uh, engaging with uh, Hindu philosophers, uh, and then, of course, trying to discover over my, my time of research trying to find some of the best possible books uh, in these particular areas. And then, of course, trying to find some of the best Christian scholars who could uh, offer evaluation, even critique. Uh, when Corzian looked through my manuscript, he had a lot of nice things to say, but he also helped correct a few things. Um, there was a, another uh, leading evangelical scholar, uh, who uh, Gerald McDermott, who is a, a scholar of the world's religions. He was kind enough to look over my manuscript and write an endorsement. So all of those kinds of things, I, I've uh, spent a good bit of my life talking with people in other religions, trying to read their sources, uh, and uh, trying to write something that would be respectful, but also um, would would seek to fairly and carefully evaluate it. So those are some of the things that went into my preparation for writing this book. Oh, excellent, excellent. Um, you, you have a, a chapter on uh, Confucius, and uh, I think of all the Eastern uh, philosophers and thinkers, uh, Confucius has been kind of one of the most fascinating to me. Um, obviously, there are a lot of kind of joke sayings that have kind of uh, popped up, which Confucius probably never actually said, but um, ha- have just kind of entered the public consciousness. Um, but what uh, what religious texts do we have that still exist that uh, Confucius had a hand in uh, writing? Well, that's a great question. And I have to tell you that uh, in writing about these four individuals, again, Krishna, Buddha, Confucius, and Muhammad, I think I had, uh, I gained more respect for both Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, and Confucius. And I, I think one of the reasons why they kind of went up in my, my evaluation is I think both of them were really first-rate 
thinkers, kind of world-class philosophers, if you will. And I think maybe even more important, I saw in Gautama and in Confucius a, a real honesty. Um, neither one of them claimed to be divine. They claimed to be human. They claimed to, be, to have limitations and boundaries. They spoke of their, their brokenness as, as human individuals. And I think in both cases, both of them didn't see themselves as kind of standing above everybody else. They saw themselves as kind of co-learners, if you will. Confucius is an extraordinary individual because he not only influences people who follow the religion or the moral philosophy of Confucianism, but virtually all of Asian people have been influenced by Confucius's ethical thinking. And it is kind of a, an untraditional religion. Confucius says very little about God. He does mention God in heaven somewhat, but the real emphasis of his life was uh, China at the time, approximately 500 years before the birth of Christ, was going through a, a, a great crisis where there was great violence, uh, a social unrest. And so Confucius was attempting to develop a moral philosophy that the Chinese could ground their civilization in. And 200 years after Confucius's death, uh, his philosophy was named the official philosophy of China. And uh, a number of people have noted that he is arguably the most influential person in the history of China. So Confucius uh, is an interesting individual. There is many things in Confucian ethics that are similar to Jewish and Christian ethics. But I would also tell you this, there are scholars um, who think that Confucius may have been a theist. And uh, that's not held by all Confucian scholars, but uh, there is a Christian scholar who's written in this field. And uh, it is interesting. It, it would be, I, I kind of parallel it this way. I suspect that Plato was a theist. I think it's possible Confucian could have been a theist. And again, I would say that's part of maybe the general revelation, recognizing that there's a moral order in the world, and that moral order needs a moral lawgiver. And the God of theism is the best explanation for an objective basis for morality. So that's not held by all people, but Confucianism is both I think, a moral philosophy and, uh, in some ways, a particular religion. Very good. Very good. As we kind of come to a close here on this, I uh, wanted to uh, look at uh, Chapter 8 on the Prophet Muhammad and the Son of God. So you've got a quote here from my all-time favorite apologist, Dr. Norm Geisler, who says, Jesus made superior claims to those made by Muhammad. Jesus claimed to be God. Muhammad claimed only to be a mere man who was a prophet. So talk to us a little bit about uh, Islam and Christianity and Muhammad. Yeah, I think this, of course, is, uh, I think Muhammad is probably the most controversial religious figure in history. Uh, Islam is, of course, the most controversial religion. Uh, what I attempt to do again is to get kind of down to the roots of Muhammad's life. Uh, he is an extraordinary individual. I mean, he's born in the Arabian desert in the Middle Ages. 
Uh, his father dies before he's born. His mother dies soon after his birth, so he's an orphan. Uh, he is illiterate, but by the time his life ends in his early 60s, he's the most influential person in the Arabian world. And today there are 1.6 billion people who, who follow the religion that he founded. One historian, a man named Hart, wrote a book entitled The 100, where he lists the, the 100 most influential people. Uh, Hart puts uh, Muhammad number one as the most influential person. I don't agree with that view. I think that, uh, that clearly uh, Jesus is the most influential person by far, but Hart has an interesting argument. He says Muhammad is the only person to found a world religion, to be a political leader, and to be a military leader. And of course, we typically judge people by their political and military background. Um, I think, of course, what is interesting about Muhammad is that uh, he had doubts about the visions that he had in the cave. His first initial thought when he began having these visions uh, was that he may have been possessed by a demon. So it could be that uh, the very early part, uh, there was a counterfeit religious experience he was having. And uh, Muhammad is an extraordinary individual. I think even though he was uneducated, I think he was intelligent. I think he had many uh, skills as a leader. But he was also a very ruthless man. When he began to take power, uh, he utilized that power to, uh, uh, to have uh, men, women, and children killed in caravans that the Muslim soldiers would overtake. So uh, Muhammad was a very imperfect man. Um, I think at times he would uh, do things and then appeal to revelation to kind of cover his his background. I mean, uh, after his marriage to Kadisha ended with her death, he took 12 wives, some of them very, very young. And uh, of course, he said that, you know, he had received revelations that told him it was okay to, to marry a, a child of nine years old. So even though it is very controversial to criticize Muhammad and Muslims become uh, irate about it, it's also very clear that Muhammad was a very imperfect man. And I guess I would say one other thing, you know, and, and that's the point that, that Norm Geisler was getting at. You know, there, there's a real difference between Jesus and the other prophets, whether it's Muhammad, uh, whether it's Zoroaster, you know, whomever it may be. You could even put Moses in the category. Prophets say, I, have a, I got this revelation from God, and they seek to point the way to God. Whereas Jesus says, I'm God in human flesh. Uh, Jesus doesn't point the way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so Jesus right. is not a mere prophet who points the way. Uh, he's the second person of the Trinity. He's the incarnate Savior in, in human flesh. Mm. And uh, Muhammad doesn't compare with Jesus. Right. Yeah, now, um, one of the... Uh, the common claims that I hear from Islam is that uh, is that when Jesus was being crucified on the cross, that Jesus wasn't actually crucified, that uh, that God um, had switched Jesus with some other person. 
Um, I, I'm kind of curious why they hold that belief and how you would respond to a, a Muslim who raises that criticism against Christianity. Yes, that, that is indeed true. In fact, uh, Islam not only rejects the Trinity, it rejects the divinity of Christ, it rejects original sin. I mean, that's a an interesting point. Here's a religion that's had such a problem with violence through its history, but it believes people are born good. They don't believe in a fallen human nature. And as you mentioned, they also believe that Allah would not allow his prophet Jesus, Isa, to die on the cross. And so uh, another person uh, was switched at that point. But you begin to look at if Islam is true, Christianity has to be false. The Trinity is false. The divinity of Christ is false. Uh, we don't have original sin. He didn't die on the cross. Those are the essential kind of elements. My response to this claim that uh, Jesus didn't die on the cross is there has never been, I think, in the history of the world, uh, a more uh, extraordinary death in history. Uh, that is, all of the Gospels and epistles speak of Jesus' death. Uh, there are Jewish and Roman historians who mention it. I think the death of Jesus on the cross of Calvary is one of the most factual uh, things in the history of Western civilization. And so uh, I think they bear tremendous burden to try to offer uh, why that is in fact not the case. I mean, they do have positive things to say about Jesus. He is a holy man. Uh, he was a healer. Uh, they even believe Jesus will return before the end of the world. Um, so there there are positive things that they say about him. They call him Isa. Um, but clearly, to be a Muslim, uh, you have to deny the very essentials of historic Christianity. So appealing to the law of non-contradiction, Christianity says Jesus is God incarnate. Islam says Jesus is not God incarnate. The law of non-contradiction says both of those can't be true, and the law of excluded middle says it's one or the other. So somebody's wrong. If, Judy, if, if Islam is true, Christianity is false. If Christianity is true, the essence of Islam is false. And so uh, there is that deep conflict, but uh, arguing that uh, Simon of Cyrene or Judas somehow was placed on the cross instead of Christ goes against not only everything we know in the Bible, but everything we know historically about uh, the, uh, the most extraordinary death in the history of the world, that is Christ crucified uh, on Calvary. Very good. Um, Professor Samples, really want to thank you for, for joining us. Uh, is there a couple of websites, maybe your blog or the RTB website? Uh, you'd like people to, to visit, and where can they get a copy of, of your new book? Yes, well, thank you. Thank you and Clinton for having me on today. I've thoroughly in, enjoyed uh, being with you, and uh, uh, Deb and I, I have always enjoyed my interaction with you, and I remember meeting you for the first time at the apologetics conference uh, uh, put on by Southern Evangelical Seminary. So it's been a real pleasure getting to know you, and I uh, I you. like the apologetic work that you do. Uh, yeah, there is a, a place in which uh, I'd like to recommend. Uh, Reasons to Believe has 
a website. It is reasons.org. There's lots of great information about science and faith. Uh, a lot of my articles are on there. I write a, a blog called Reflections uh, by Ken. It's on WordPress. And uh, I, of course, have uh, uh, a former podcast, Straight Thinking, and a new podcast called Imago Dei, which is Latin for the image of God. As far as getting the book, you can either order it, order it from Reasons to Believe at reasons.org, but yesterday it became available for the first time on Amazon.com, so you can you can find the book there. But I want to thank you, Devin, and uh, I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk, and I want to encourage you and Clinton in your in your ministries. What you guys are doing is very important, and I can't think of a time in history in which uh, apologetics, including apologetics in the area of values and morality, is any more important than it is today. So you guys keep up the good work. Thank you, Professor Samples. Yeah, and uh, uh, Professor Samples, I just wanted to uh, say real quick that um, I was kind of a kind of a last-minute addition to this podcast because I actually happened to be in town this week uh, in South Carolina doing presentations. So unfortunately, I wasn't able to actually uh, read through your book before uh, before the interview that we did today. Ordinarily, I would have, um, but I, I did want to uh, say that it does look like a very interesting book, and I, I would uh, you know throw my recommendation out there to anyone listening that uh, you know go pick this up. And it looks like it's it's a very important book and a very very fascinating read, really. Well, thank you, Clinton. I appreciate that. You asked some really great questions. And uh, again, uh, tell Scott I said hello. I uh, I really appreciate him and, and the ministry that you guys are involved in. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I'm, I'm always, uh, I guess I probably shouldn't be, but I'm always kind of surprised whenever I, I talk to a professor or apologist or philosopher and they say, oh, yeah, I know Scott. He's a friend of mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, Scott is an awfully... Uh, He's an awfully personal and gracious individual, and so he's yeah, a most, very most easy person to like, yes. Yeah. Well, thank you, Professor Samples, again for your time, and I uh, hope you have a good weekend and look uh, forward to having you on again in the future. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, God bless both of you. Bye-bye. God bless. God bless. All right, folks. Uh, Clinton, it's been fun, buddy. You're a great co-host. Yeah, has, yeah that, was a, that was a great show. I, every time I... I uh, do a podcast with Professor Samples. I just love it because he's – I just love everything about him. Yeah, and remember, we have uh, something going on tomorrow as well. Yeah, talk uh, 30 seconds about that. Okay, sure. Um, tomorrow we're going to be um, – oh, did you want to talk about the thing in the evening or – Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, I'm going to be delivering a presentation um, for um, – well, it's basically a, a general pro-life presentation, kind of a pro-life 101 um, for for a group of people tomorrow. Uh, so, and it'll yep, it'll be here at my house. Uh, you can email me at sola dot scripture s o l a dot scripture at yahoo dot com. This is uh, Thursday nights, which is when we normally do our Ratio Christie uh, high school prep or college prep, where we take college st- or high school students and. We get them ready to go to the university. We train them in apologetics. And uh, tomorrow night they're going to hear a defense of the pro-life position. So uh, you don't have to be a young adult uh, if you're in the area and you'd like to come on out. 
shoot me an email, solo.scripture at yahoo.com. We'll get you the information. Clinton, uh, I know tomorrow we're going to do uh, a blog, or I'm not a blog, a podcast uh, with you going more in depth yeah. on uh, the pro-life issue. But uh, for those listening to this podcast, is there anywhere people can find your information and get a hold of you? Or Yeah, uh, you can... You can find well. You can find me uh, various places on the internet. Uh, one of the most uh, common places you can find me is on the LTI blog. You can find that at www.prolifetraining.com. Uh, there should be a section uh, in the drop-down menus that says something like training, and you can find the, the blog uh, in one of the drop-down menus. And so you can find my writings there. That's the most common place that I write for. Um, you can also uh, shoot me an email. Uh, my email is clinton at prolifetraining.com. So it's just my first name at ProLifeTraining.com, which is the LTI website. Uh, or you can you can find me on Facebook as uh, another place. All right. Folks, uh, keep tuned in the, in the, the following weeks. Uh, we have an interview scheduled sometime with Nancy Piercy. Uh, get her back on our show. We've done the Finding Truth. Now we're going to do Total Truth. And, uh, you know, we plan on doing a bunch, uh, bunch more shows and have a great uh, lineup of guests coming up. So... Stay with us, folks, and uh, appreciate you tuning in. Uh, tomorrow we plan on going, I think, around 3 o'clock live, and uh, we'll do a basic pro-life uh, apologetics training as well as taking your phone calls at 760-542-3907. So until then, God bless, and uh, yep. Clinton, great working with you, sir. Yep. It's uh, great working with you, too. God bless. God bless.